Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. My name is Ryan Shecklin. Each week, I interview experts and leaders about their stories and strategies and how to optimize your mind, your body, and your career so that you can optimize your life and make every breath count. Thank you for investing your time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. John Quincy Adams said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. And Peter Drucker said, management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right thing. My guest today is Trey Taylor, author of the best-selling book, A CEO Only Does Three Things. Trey is a sought-after speaker, an expert on all things leadership. We talk about his experiences with some well-known leaders like Jeff Arnold of WebMD and Kevin Harrington of Shark Tank. Trey shares his only three things a CEO needs to do. We also discuss how to establish a company culture, how to hire the right people for that culture, and how to cultivate those people into high performers. If you know anyone that desires to be a great leader, share this episode with them. And if this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And be sure to rate us and leave a review with the most impactful part of this episode when you're done listening. Now here is your master class in leadership with Trey Taylor. Trey Taylor, what is up, man? Thanks for joining the podcast. Ryan, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm a fan of the podcast as well as being your guest today. I have listened to a bunch of your episodes with uh, some friends of mine, Tommy Breedlove, Anthony Trucks, and I listened to Claire Rogers' episode, which I thought was amazing. So, uh, you know, when it, it's really good, like when you get to be on a podcast that you follow and listen to. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, that, that means a ton. And I, I appreciate the support. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You released a book titled A CEO only does three things. And I want to know exactly what those three things are. But before we dive into that, I'm really curious, how did you become a CEO? It's not a job that like anyone can just get. There's a lot of effort that goes into being a CEO. And I know your story. And I know it wasn't really a conventional way to become a CEO. So what's your story? Yeah, my family's had a business. Uh, we're in our 55th year of operation now, and it's a financial planning and financial services, insurance, benefits, that sort of thing, uh, located in Georgia. And we've had that, you know, that's been part of the family business for a long time. When I was coming up, my dad always told me, don't do what I do for a living. Go become a lawyer, a doctor, something like that. So I went to law school. Uh, and while I was in law school, it was the sort of first internet bubble. And so there were all kinds of interesting opportunities that were opening up to people in law school that had never been available before. The you know the traditional career path was, you know, you go take your, uh, you know, your classes, then you take the bar, you get a job in a firm, you hate that job for thirty five years, but you make a lot of money and a lot of prestige, and then you retire dead, you know, at sixty years of age. But at that point, it was getting really interesting. So I got a call from a mentor of mine who I'd worked for, I'd clerked for him. And he said, look, I'm leaving the place where you clerked for me, which is an insurance company, and I'm okay. going to join an internet startup, and I want you to come with me because I need some help. I need clerk help in the, uh, in the company. And I thought, this is crazy. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I wanted to be back in Atlanta, 
And, uh, and so he was moving to Atlanta. So anyway, long story short, we made it work. And I went into that and, and that company became WebMD. So I had this weird sort of nice. career path that my dad had set up for me. And then I went from that company. I had a lot of uh, experience with venture capital and investments and that sort of thing. And we started a venture fund uh, in Atlanta and I stayed in that job for a while. 9-11 happened. And then uh, the venture business just evaporated. So uh, I went in-house with AOL. And then I had just accepted a job uh, with AOL when uh, my phone rang and my mom said, hey, we're in Vegas. And I knew that they had gone for sort of the new year to have a good time. And your dad's in a hospital. Well, at the same time, the moving trucks were coming to get my stuff from uh, Virginia to Atlanta to get my stuff and move me up to take the job with AOL. And I said, look, I got so much going on. Just keep me up to date. And she said, no, you don't understand. You need to be on a plane right now. Jeez. And so I met my brother at the airport and we flew out. And um, and unfortunately, we didn't get to bring my dad back the way that we wanted to. Uh, and we lost him at that point. And, and super interesting, we lost him from COVID. They just didn't call it that in 2005. They called it SARS. And that's exactly what it was. And um, he had had a heart attack that was misdiagnosed. And it put him in a really immunocompromised state. And he picked up COVID somewhere along the way and uh, didn't come home. So here I am, I'm faced with like literally the moving trucks coming to get me and me owing an obligation to the family for sure uh, of taking care of everybody in the family, running the family business and that sort of thing. And I'm sort of caught in that moment at that point. And I, I just got real quiet one day and just had a conversation with myself. And, uh, you know, my dad never told me no. If it was something that I could make a case for, my dad made it happen. And I always knew I had an obligation to repay that kindness and that support and that sort of thing. I just wanted to do it on my time frame, <laughs> but that wasn't a, a, an option. Yeah. So that's when I moved home and took over the family business and, and never actually started the job at uh, AOL. That, what a crazy turn of events. This must be actually a pretty emotional time for you with with. COVID happening now, just understanding what you went through with your dad dying from SARS. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. We were, you know, lucky in as much as you can be lucky in a situation like that. He was on the vent for two solid weeks. And oh, uh, the, the cause of death was actually um, an acquired infection that you get from being on the vent for too long called ARDS. And, um, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm watching friends and colleagues and family members, you know, go through this terrible thing where they can't be around their loved ones who are on the vent and sort of on the slow path uh, to leaving this world. And, uh, it, it's tough for them, you know, and it, it brings up a lot of, uh, uncomfortable, unhappy memories, uh, for me as well. Yeah. It's a terrible time. Man. So when you decided to take over your dad's company, I mean, did you feel like you were prepared to do that? Not at all. First of all, uh, I had always been the young kid in the room, you know, so I was able to observe really great CEO behavior by being the law clerk or the uh, corporate development associate or something of that nature. But I had worked my way into really big rooms. So uh, Jeff Arnold was the CEO of WebMD and Gosh, yeah. if you called him right now and asked him my name, he probably couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't tell you who I was. But I definitely knew who he was, right? And I watched yeah. and studied. Uh, he was a very young CEO, especially at that time. He was 28, 29. He turned 30 while, while I was working for him. And 
Jeff had an amazing ability to get into rooms with really big people. So um, Steve Ballmer, um, uh, Rupert Murdoch and his son, James, uh, these are the kind of people that I was able to be in the negotiation rooms with and study how they maneuvered and what kind of things that they they did. And it did a, sort of tell me early on that they weren't supermen. They weren't born CEOs. You know, they had developed their style. They had developed their own capabilities, but not one of them ever showed up to a negotiation by themselves. They mm. always had a team of people that they relied on and without shame. At no point did uh, Balmer say, well, let me give you every answer to this question, right? He point, he, his basic job was to point at people around the room and say, give the Microsoft response to this issue and then rely on that response. But he kept the deal in mind and in the forefront of everybody's thinking and navigated that way. So, you know, having been able to observe that, it was helpful, but it was still, I was a total fish out of water. As a matter of fact, my dad never carried the CEO title. Oh, really? He was a president. Yeah, that's he just had president on his business card, you know? Okay. And uh, so I invented that title for our business because I didn't want to have my dad's title. I wanted to have something different from him. And uh, and so that's the way that I sort of became a CEO was, you know, not to step on anybody's toes or what have you. And yeah. um, so it was good, but it was, it was, you know, it was a learning process and God bless the people that had to work for me while I was figuring a lot of that stuff out. Well, in a lot of ways, you almost feel like it's, it's gotta be kind of cool, especially watching someone take over their dad's business. I mean, in a way, like you kind of go back to the movie, um, Tommy boy. Right. And, you know, I would imagine some people at some point were like, Oh no, what's Trey going to do? Like he's this young kid coming in. Is he going to be able to actually keep us afloat? Our jobs are on the line. I mean, are we actually going to be able to, to continue to have a company that's going to flourish? Um, yeah. I would, I would imagine that would be nerve wracking, but also exciting to be like, watch you grow into the man to the CEO you were growing into, which is exciting. I'm curious because Jeff Arnold, I mean, he, he's a very well-known guy. I mean, what, what were some of the things that you observed from him outside of him bringing a team of people and maybe humility is a big thing. Um, but what are some things you actually observed from guys like Jeff Arnold that you were able to take with you to your new company? Uh, Jeff had a gift, and it's not one that I've seen repeated at the level that he plays this this game. Uh, Jeff had a gift, and, and probably still does, of being able to have absolute clarity as to what he was trying to get. And so many other people let the vision of where they're trying to go be informed by other things along the way. Jeff never mm -hmm. did that. If you ran up into an impasse and you couldn't get over it or something, Jeff would modify the vision. But not in some sort of wholesale fashion. It was very much, this is who we are trying to be and we need these things to be that. So your jobs are to go out and get those things that we need to do. But at no point did he deviate from that vision. It was always the fact that he wanted to build WebMD into the single place that people sat down to get uh, information about health, uh, to improve their health, uh, to make themselves healthier and better and their families healthier and better in the country and the world healthier and better and that sort of thing. And he could speak in these really lofty terms, but have crystal clear vision as to what that actually looked like, even mm -hmm. with all, I mean, we're talking 98, 99, 2000 when I was there, you know, it, when none of the tools existed to be able to put that 
stuff together. You know, we, we couldn't have a, a, a video conference at that point. We couldn't, you know, it was all HTML, uh, you know, programmed at night and that kind of thing. It was just a different world, but he could really see kind of what the future was going to look like and how it impacted what we were working on. It was magnificent. That's crazy. So, and the term that comes to mind when you say that is dichotomy, because what you first described was that he would never walk into a negotiation without a team of people there. Well, to to feel like you at least want to bring a team of people, I feel like you do have to put your ego aside and you have to say, I am not going to have the answer to everything. Um, I mean, I need support. I have support. That's why I've hired great people, right? It's, it's important to have support. On the other hand, what you're saying is his vision was crystal clear and he had such confidence in his vision that he was able to not deviate from it and he trusted it that much. So how exactly. did you, did you have these same feelings when you took over your dad's company? Like, was there a dichotomy that you were trying to balance at the same time? So it's interesting that first conversation that I had with myself when I realized that I was going to have to take over the business because my initial plan was to come in, hand the, my brother was in the business at that point, hand it off, just stabilize things and then go take, you know, go take advantage of the life that I had been building for myself. And I got there and I realized my brother did not want to play that role, was not educated to play that role. It just wasn't who he was, not taking anything away from him. It just wasn't who he was. And it was the skill set that I had unknowingly been working on for a long time. So the first thing I did when I sat down was I came up with two or three things. And I said, and I remember thinking that Jeff would be really clear about what it was we were trying to accomplish. And so I I got the entire team together, about 30 people at that point. And I said, uh, we're not going to lose a single account. We're not going to lose a single employee. And we're going to hit the goals that my dad had set for the the production goals of revenue goals that dad and you guys set this year. If everything else falls apart, I don't care. But those are the three things that we're going to do. And we get all the way to the end of the year. And we had one person, uh, who was going to leave. And uh, she said, or her husband had been transferred for a different job. And she said, I'm not going to move with him until January the 5th, because I want to help you keep your word. Uh, we didn't lose any accounts at all. And uh, we hit that number uh, that, uh, that my dad had set out through a really interesting thing that happened with one of our team members. So uh, being crystal clear is really important. I consult with companies all the time now and I ask, okay, what do you want to get out of this consulting arrangement? Like, where are we trying to get to? I want to be better. I want to make more. I want to do some stuff. We spend a lot of time really clarifying what the vision looks like. And I don't want that to be like consultant speak. I want people to really grasp, you know, the point there is that the clearer you can describe the end point of your actions the more emotional and psychological energy your mind will allow to be released in order to pursue that. But if you're not, if you're murky, if you are uh, undecided about any of the choices that need to be made, your subconscious will withhold energy on purpose. Mm -hmm. This is a good survival mechanism so that you have energy when it's time to make that decision. So we work a lot with CEOs about really getting two or three things, uh, uh, you know, in focus where the rest of the team can understand that that's where we're headed. Yeah. And I, I do feel like one of the things that 
specifically entrepreneurs might struggle with, at least ones that are really starting out and have maybe an idea of a company or what they may want to do, one of the things they struggle with, and it's something that I actually struggle with a lot as well, is really distilling that message into maybe one sentence or a mission and having that crystal clear focus. So how do you work with a company, work with a CEO or a founder or a leader on taking maybe a broad idea and bringing it more focused? Yeah, we all struggle with this. You know, when you're in the middle of it, where you're in the soup and you're swimming around and you're trying to see, you know, three years, five years, 10 years out on the horizon, it is a difficult thing to sort of come in and, and you know, formulate one of the you know, mission statements that we're all supposed to have or something of that nature. So we do a lot of conversation. We do a lot of internal assessment of the team and the CEO as to exactly what it is people are trying to accomplish. Lots of times people are trying to make a paycheck, mm. right? But we're, we're, we're told, we're taught, we're educated that you can't say that. That can't be the thing. And so um, in, in exploring that with CEOs, very often we will really find uh, that the lack of traction, the lack of passion in a business is because they don't have big enough goals uh, to mm. follow. Uh, I'm working with a company right now and they have a, a certain sort of specialized training school that is going gangbusters. And the the obvious next thing to do is to open one in there in Atlanta is to probably open one in Nashville or Tampa or Birmingham or something of that nature, you know, because sure. they can replicate that model over and over. Their vision of the CEO does not say that they're supposed to solve that training need in the industry in places where it doesn't exist. And so that's what we're having to do is to sort of reformulate exactly what they're about, what the purpose is. And, uh, and at, you can see as he's grasping it, as he's sort of seeing it, that, wait a minute, my mission is just bigger than just a little zip code issue. Uh, a lot of energy, a lot of creativity is being released. He says, well, if we did it this way, it could be like this you know, those kinds of things. And his team is really rallying behind him as well. So, um, you know, I wish there was a formula where I could say, go to this webpage and fill this out and then you'll have it. It isn't, it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be this sort of identificational process where you, uh, you wrestle that bear until you get the right answer. I was going to, I was going to actually say, well, that'd be a great opportunity to create the webpage to do that. But I like that you had to add in there. Like, no, you just can't do that. It's not, it's not as simple as just saying, it's ABC. I will tell you though, that most businesses that I deal with, um, the CEOs are mired in a level of work that's a level or two levels below where they should be focused and where their capabilities would take them. And so when you show them that and show them, you know, that they should be focused at a higher level, um, they get really scared at first and then really happy and up to the challenge. And, yeah. And uh, this and, was, and this is cool. This is cool because um, I love and I want to get into to your book. And, and I think you said something that I, I don't know if you realize what you said or not. I, I, you may, but you said you had three things that you wanted to do as soon as you took over your dad's company. It was your first three goals. It was the very first three things you were going to work on. And you said you, you didn't want to lose an employee. You wanted to continue the mission of the company that your dad had set out. I, I believe that's what you said. And you wanted to hit all the benchmarks and numbers that he put in place. 
advice. And I think this is amazing that you wrote a book saying a CEO only does three things. You came in as your first job as CEO. You identified three things that you articulated crystal clear to the company you were leading. And those three things all, I feel like, deal with the only three things a CEO does. And in your book, you write about culture, people, and numbers. And I know that that's a very broad idea, but each of those things directly correlates with one of those categories. Yeah, that's exactly how I picked it up. When I began to think, uh, you know, the next person to take this job, I want to write for them two things that did not exist when I took the job. The first was a job description, because at the end of the day, I didn't know. And I have since learned, you know how you you do this, like when you don't know something, you're like, oh, my God, I'm so stupid. I don't know this, but I'm not going to tell anybody because everybody else knows it. No, nobody has a job description written for a CEO. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to write that job description. And that was the beginning of the exercise for me. And this was 2006 or seven when I started sketching that out, because my thought was I wouldn't stay in that position forever. I would hire somebody or bring a family member or even a team member to, to sort of fill that role for us. Um, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing, I wanted to sort of write a, a, a bit of a testament or like a, a covenant or something that says, this is how you know when you're doing this job correctly. And at, yeah. you know, at the end of the process, all of that turned into this book. And I would feel confident handing this book to my successor and say, this is what you have to do to make this thing work. That makes sense. And I would imagine that a lot of it was obviously from things you learned from uh, Jeff Arnold, other other CEOs and leaders that you have worked with, but also things you learned from your dad that worked for the company. I mean, what are the top three things your dad did to actually get this company to where it was? So my dad was second generation. So he took over from my uh, grandfather. He actually bought my grandfather uh, out of his interest in the company. Uh, and took it over. And he did, uh, he did a lot of different things, you know, that was sort of specific to the business because he was, a, he was quite a good operator. But the biggest thing that my dad uh, taught my brother and I was that you only get one shot at integrity, right? Mm-hmm. You, there are no mulligans when it comes to your word. I've heard him say that a thousand times. He was a good golfer and, and he would think of life in terms of golf, you know, which is a good thing. Um, and you know, that was one of the things that being, let me say this in the right way. So as not to offend too many people, like being an attorney, integrity is never taught in law school, right? It's always about, uh, getting the right answer. There are ethics or canons of ethics and that sort of thing. And I don't want to suggest that lawyers are educated outside of that, but, uh, just to uh, remember that, you know, integrity is such an important force. It's the only English noun that I can find. It does not have an adjectival form. What I mean by saying that is you can't modify integrity. It can't be gray, right? You can't take a little bit of poison in a glass of water and be okay. Uh, And my dad was very clear on that. And, uh, and so we put that at the, really at the forefront of the culture that we built after he was gone. So that was one of the things I took uh, from watching him. Do you feel like integrity and authenticity are related? Because you do write about authenticity in your book. They are related. And a mentor that uh, came to me a little bit later in my life, uh, Ron Willingham, he and I wrote a, co-wrote a book called uh, Authenticity. And it was about, um, you know, how can you tell when you're being authentic? What are the benefits of being authentic? And one of them is uh, you can't be authentic without having integrity, without 
doing what you say in the manner in which you say it by the time in which you say that it will be done. Um, you know, if you don't have integrity, which is that energy that you put into keeping your word. Um, and so Ron had a wonderful formulation that we're all created in three dimensions, uh, an intellectual and emotional and an identificational dimension. Uh, he called okay. them the, I think the, I feel and the, I am, which is in my book as well. Yep. And, uh, and his point was when you are acting in a way where your thoughts and your emotions and your belief in who you are, are aligned, that is the definition of you being authentic to who you are. And uh, it's very important. I use it all the time. I use it in coaching um, and uh, very gently nudging CEOs sometimes who aren't acting in an authentic manner to, uh, to examine their actions or the actions of their uh, employees or a company as a whole to, to get to that state. Because the flow state begins when you hit uh, a state of authenticity. So I, ha- I interviewed um, a couple a couple months ago, I want to say it was now, and he was an executive leader at L'Oreal, specifically the Redken brand of L'Oreal. Um, his name was Minter Dial, and uh, it was a great episode, and, and he spoke a lot about authenticity. And one of the things he said was that authenticity, you do have to have in your personality, but you have to kind of be cautious about how much authenticity you bring to the job. And, and his reference was, you know, I love the Grateful Dead. Well, I'm not going to show up to work in a tie-dye shirt and, you know, and, and my hair up because that's not what I do as a leader. Now, I have to be authentic in my integrity. And he did speak to that. But is, is there one of the things that I've always found, and I guess this is where I'm getting to with this, is I think it's really important to create um, a relationship with people that work for you and within your company. And to do that, I think there has to be some authenticity to who you are as an individual. So how much of yourself should you bring into your job as a leader, as a CEO? So I think we approach the question a little bit differently. Um, we believe that culture is the, is the way that people can authentically show up to an organization. To Mentor's point, I think he's right about this. And and remember, he's working in much larger organizations than I'm typically consulting with and that sort of thing. They have different challenges because they have so many more different people and personalities and that sort of thing. Uh, But for people to be able to show up to your company in an authentic manner, you have to build a culture that will accept those that are authentic in that way and reject those that are not. And Mm. that is a really hard place for people to get to. Because it is so hard, gosh, especially in today's world, it is so hard to find good people. You know, I read a letter from Cicero uh, to his son uh, this past summer. And uh, Cicero would write these really long flowing essays just to sort of practice, you know, and to get into the habit. And he sent them to his, uh, his son to read. And one of the things that he said, now this would have been 38, no, before that even, you know, this time of Julius Caesar, basically. And he said, good help is hard to find, right? This is not something new, okay? But the point is, if you build the right culture, that means that the people who have been thirsting for what you build, that level of authenticity where their thoughts, their feelings, and their belief in who they are and why they are, are addressed and nurtured and fed in that kind of organization, are going to be drawn to that place. And they're going to stay forever. They're going to do their best work forever, all of that sort of thing. 
it also means by definition that there are some people who are not going to fit into that. Those people are not bad humans. They shouldn't be run out of town. None of that. The best thing you can say to those folks is you're not a fit for what we're doing here. And let me help you find somewhere that you are a fit. I do that in our recruiting process all the time. I had the conversation this morning with a candidate that I don't think is a good fit for us, but I know a place where I think he could really do amazing work. So two questions to follow up on that. A, how do you build that culture? What specifically, what actions can you take to build that culture? And B, how do you screen people out as you're interviewing them, such as this morning? How do you know, how can you tell that someone's not going to fit into that culture? Yeah, I love the second question, but I'm going to answer the first one first. Um, to build a culture, there's a process. And cultures are built on values because the behaviors of your people is where the values show up, right? Mm. So our values show up in the behaviors of our people. It's the greatest manager that you never have to hire. And, and here's the example that I love. We, you, uh, you and I know uh, Tommy Breedlove. He's a big personality, knows everybody in the room five minutes after he walks in. Not only knows them, but has heard about their mom's struggles or their kids just got uh, awards in school. He's just that kind of magnetic guy. and He knows everybody and he loves on everybody in that way. Right. Uh, I, I won't say he's the loudest person in the room, but you know what I mean? He's the center of attention when yeah. he gets to the room. If I take him to the symphony, Atlanta's got a, fi- a fine symphony. If I take him to the Atlanta symphony, at the end of that evening, do you think he knows the French horn player or the viol- first violinist? Here? No, of course not. Why? Because the culture of that event or that staging is not one that will support that behavior. So which has mm. to change? Tommy doesn't think that he has to change the, the, the um, culture of the symphony and the experience that people are there to receive. Instead, yeah. he changes his behavior. And so that's what we do is we look at the values that individuals hold, that they think are important to exist in the world, that they express through the business workings that they do. And we begin to craft value statements that become the cultural sort of uh, uh, operating system, if you will, like culture OS. Uh, That's how we do it. Then we ritualize, we intentionally ritualize the practice of those values by highlighting when we see them performed correctly. So every Monday uh, in my organization, someone on my team takes an email and and shares with us, we have 13 Beatitudes. Those are our core values. They take one of the Beatitudes. Uh, This week uh, is uh, be truthful. We tell truth for its own sake, and we have a whole paragraph about that. They reiterate that. That's important, but not really important. The second piece, they come in and they say, One time I saw William Hall, who's one of our guys, tell the truth in a manner that was both loving, respectful, and tough to a client that needed to change their behavior. And that's what being truthful means to me as far as we practice Mm -hmm. it up here. That goes to everybody in the organization once a week. We do that. We repeat that process because we have 13 values times four is 52. We repeat it four times, which is each quarter we go over our values in that way. Every meeting that we start starts with a, the value of the week, the attitude of the week. Super abbreviated, really quick discussion around the table, 30 seconds to a minute and a half. How do we see this practiced today? Constantly informing our work, right? That's how we establish a culture and you build it and, and, and you let it take root. Culture shares a, uh, a Latin cognate with, uh, with the uh, word that we use, cultivate. 
right? It's the same sort of uh, expression of a Latin word, which means to nurture and protect. So your culture Mm. are those values that you want nurtured and protected so that they become more and more and more of what they are to begin with. If I plant a seed, I cultivate that. I do that by removing weeds, but also by enriching the soil and that sort of thing. And then whatever it is that I planted a rose bush or whatever becomes more of a rose and more of a rose and more of a rose until it's a perfect rose, right? It's the exact same thing that CEOs have to to have to take in. So that's the first question. Mm -hmm. uh, And I appreciate it. The second question is like, how do you find people to do that? How do you know if somebody's going to be a good participant in in your culture? And largely you don't, but you know who does? The person who's sitting in front of you. So we have a four-step interview process. And I don't necessarily mean like four separate interviews, although typically it's that or more. Uh, But we have a four-step process. And the very first thing that we talk about, and I do this work, and I want my CEOs doing this work, is the cultural interview. And I would sit with you, Ryan, if I was interviewing you, I would say, hey, I want to tell you four quick stories about who we are as a company. And in those stories... All I want you to do is to listen and see, could you place yourself in that story? Can you see yourself in that story? If you can, you'll understand what it means to be an employee here, right? If you can't, it doesn't mean you're a bad guy or anything like that. It means that probably we're too weird and you'll you'll be happier somewhere else, right? And then at the end of that interview, I say, I want you to go away for 24 to 48 hours. Think about this and ask yourself these four rhetorical questions. If the answer to those questions is yes, I would love to interview and really tell you about the job that we're discussing. But before we do that, I want you to be entirely convinced that this is the place you've been looking for. And I lose 30% of people after that interview. Yeah, I was going to ask how many people actually would walk away because especially in a time like now where it is true that it's hard to find good people, but it's also hard to find good jobs um, and well-paying jobs too. So it's for, for someone that might just say, Hey, I I can, I can be inauthentic for a job. um, I would imagine that they might not walk away when they probably should. Yeah. And we talk about that in that cultural interview. And I say specifically, uh, because I think in interviews, people get, uh, we're taught to get the job, right? Whether we really want the job or not, we're taught to get the job. If you get the interview, you go in and you interview your pants off to get that job. It's almost Uh, gamification. Exactly. It is. Exactly. And then you're the dog that caught the car and he doesn't know what to do with it. So I literally Mm -hmm. have that conversation in that interview. And I say, look, I could, Ryan, I could sit with you for an hour a week and I would enjoy it for 52 weeks. At the end of that, I still wouldn't know if you were a fit for this or not, but you will know. And so here's what I want to caution you against. Don't BS it, right? You don't have to answer those questions for me. I want them to be answered for you because I want you to get a job that you love. You could BS your way into the job for sure. You could probably get hired. You're smart. You're accomplished, all of that then what have you done? You've gotten a job that you don't love that doesn't feed and nourish your soul and your dreams for the future. And, yes. and, and I've taken that job from someone else. And I don't want that and you don't want that. So let's just commit to be super upfront with each other when we're talking about how this goes. And it puts people, I mean, constant, I'm always looking for this in the interview when they sit back and then they start processing in a different way. And we tell four stories. And then we say at the end of that story, could you see yourself 
in that story. One of the stories ends in a church where a funeral is taking place. So Ryan, would you see yourself in that funeral? Don't answer it for me. Go home and think about it. Ask your wife, tell her the story. Would, does she see you in that story? That's how we go through the interview process. Yeah. So do you so ask them about, to answer right away or are you asking for those answers at that follow-up? Are those the four questions that you say, the follow-up questions to think about, rhetorical questions? Yeah. So we talk about uh, the fact that we're a family-based enterprise, meaning that we treat each other like family. And that's a really important thing for us. Um, uh, one of our team members lost a family member and without instruction, the entire a company showed up four hours away on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of a hurricane to support him because we don't think people should go through that stuff by themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Would you have been in the church? If you weren't, you're not a bad person, right? This is not even somebody that you knew or whatever. So I like that sort of dichotomy, that dialogue that they have to go through. We talk about being a goals-based organization. It's a sales organization. So we talk about that. We talk about uh, integrity, of course, and we talk about accountability. And um, it's really funny. I had a kid, uh, he was a younger guy last summer who was gung-ho for the job. It was a sales position he was interviewing for. He was ready to go. And uh, he went home and he did what I asked him to do, which was discuss those things with his wife. And his Mm -hmm. wife said, although I love you and this doesn't change anything, you hate being held accountable more than anybody I've ever met. And -hmm. if you get up there and say you're going to do something and you don't do it, they're going to hold you accountable. They may fire you. They may make, you'll be miserable. Mm. He didn't end up taking the job. I called a friend of mine who doesn't have the same type of culture, not a knock on his culture. They have a different culture. Every organization does. He hired that kid. That kid has done remarkably well for himself and for that business and will be with them for years and years because what they incent and what they really value is what he brings to the table. Man, Trey, I love this because I think a lot of people one of the things that people tend to do is they take themselves out of, like they take the personality or themselves out of the equation, right? And they say, well, yeah, I have integrity. I have accountability. I have whatever whatever that value may be. When it's, and I always get this term uh, incorrect. Uh, I believe the term is subject. It's objective versus subjective, right? But when you take mm-hmm. the objectivity out of it and it's just subjective, they could say, yes, I have these values, but the storytelling aspect of it, it, it makes it so much more personal. And I think it really allows people to kind of put themselves in the situation without maybe labeling uh, a, a pro versus a con and see if that exactly. culture fits well. Exactly. Really well put. I haven't seen it in that way before. Uh, Let me tell you where I got it. So we take our kids to church, right? And Mm -hmm. our kids, uh, if you went to church as a kid, it's the most boring thing you can possibly imagine. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're engaged. They know the central message, that sort of thing, but it's boring to hear some old guy talk to them from the pulpit every Sunday or what have you. Um, My son went away to a camp and it wasn't a church camp, but they had a little church group that met. And, uh, and they would tell a little Bible story and then ask my son, who was about seven at that point, <clears throat> where do you see yourself in the story? Okay, so great. Yeah. He comes home from camp. We're driving home and, um, and we're listening to the news. And he turns to me and says, Dad, where do you see yourself in the story? And I almost ran off the road. It was such a profound and beautiful concept that I have used extensively since then. Because as humans, what are we all trying to do? We're trying to get our part of the story. Mm-hmm. And we waste a lot of time and mental effort constructing a role for ourselves in the script 
that may not be there sometimes. I know I do. So that's yeah. that's the short. Sorry for the detour, but that's where it came to. No. Me. I always think you should give credit when you know you get something good. That that's profound for for a kid to be able to bring up. I mean, that's that's a really great and the fact that you're able to also put the ego aside and use it and give the credit is awesome as well. Um, I do want to talk too about people because I think one of the hardest things for any high performer to do is to go from a high performing job into a manager, right? So what are really the important aspects of managing people? Like what should you be doing to build a relationship so that people feel like you are invested in them as much as maybe they are invested in their career or the company? Yeah, no, I think it's a super important question. Uh, The gateway question for me is, should the person be moving from one role to the other? Right. How can so, you tell? Uh, uh, so very often you can't, and you need you need to have that conversation, and they need to make that discussion because typically when I have that talk with someone, why are you taking a manager's job when you are like literally the best sales guy or ops guy or whatever it happens to be, and and they will say, well, I want to make more money, I want to have more prestige, I want to have a better title, and that sort of thing, and often I'll go back to the uh, CEO and say. Why don't we look at seeing if this person can get everything that they need to feed whatever it is that isn't being fed without subjecting uh, other people to a new manager? You know, that sort Mm. of thing. Um, What we find typically is that management starts in leadership. So if someone is already leading a team uh, without the express authority to do that, they're probably going to be good in management as well. But if you're yes. giving it to somebody so that they won't leave or they want to make more money or, or something of that nature, it, it, uh, typically it doesn't work out very well. Um, and so we, we look at that for sure. Uh, how, do, you know, how do you be a good manager? It, it, this applies to any type of leadership. You have to understand yourself first. Your I think, your I feel, and your I am have to be in congruence. You have to have that authenticity so that you know. Because what do we all hate when we work from somebody is when they're entirely inconsistent, when it's arbitrary, when it's political. I like this person more, so I'm going to have this answer, even if it's not the right. We all hate that. And so somebody has to come to it knowing themselves. And then secondly, they have to know their people in that same sort of three-level model as well. So if I were your manager, I would want to be able to answer for you what you would think about a problem before I brought the problem. How are you going to feel about that problem? And what part of your identity is going to be impacted to the negative or to the positive in that problem? I want to be able to know that and intuit that before I sit down and ask you and then listen to your responses on those things. Um, it's, it's a very important thing. When I get managers and leaders managing from the I am dimension, from that identity dimension, that's when management doesn't require any work anymore, right? Mm. If I know that you are a CFO, you just happen to be 24 years old and you haven't had the, the required job experience yet, but I began to treat you as much like a CEO as I can, a CFO as I can over time, then I am helping you to build that identity which then requires you to go get knowledge and experience and do certain projects and that sort of thing. It's a much different managerial environment. How how can people go from I think or I feel to I am? Well, the I am dimension is entirely unconscious. So we are conscious of our thoughts, our I think dimension. We're constantly 
conscious of that. You can even, you know, if you think about it, you can see the words that you're speaking go right by you in little subtitles all the time. We are semi-conscious of our emotions, right? So if I'm angry or sad or something, I can tell you, Ryan, I'm angry. What a, what a bad question that you have asked me or something of that. nature, right? I could, I could express my emotions to you, but there are also emotions that I, that I keep in the sort of quasi-conscious or subconscious, right? Maybe I feel very intimidated by that question because it makes mm. me feel stupid or evil or something like that, right? So we don't share all of our emotions all the time, thank goodness, but our mm-hmm. beliefs in ourselves, we hold largely in the un- unconscious sphere. So we don't know all the time in really articulated terms who we are and why we are that way and what that means for our behaviors. And so how do we do that? You spend a lot of self-reflective time. You spend a lot of time with people who will tell you the truth and you talk about things in the I am uh, phraseology and that dimension. And you express, you know, I am the kind of guy that wants to do the right thing but I love a good paycheck. So how do I work, reconcile those two things together? And your friends are going to tell you, you can't, you won't, you don't, you do a good job. You know, you're going to get that support from a good group of friends and family and, and that sort of thing. And that's how we, we have to spend time in the I am dimension. So getting back to the people a little bit, cause I've, I've read and I, I, can't remember exactly where I saw it, but there was something that said you can only be responsible for, or you can only manage. I want to say it was like eight people. Um, Like one individual can only manage eight people. And I'd really have to go back and see where I saw that. I mean, how many people, because what you're saying is management is very personal, right? So how, how many people can you actually manage? Uh, so I think the science says that any human can maintain 11 quality relationships at a time. Okay. Okay. It doesn't say you can, uh, you can have 11 work relationships and 11 family relationships and mm-hmm. so forth. Right. So if I've got a wife and two kids, uh, you know, a, a mother, a grandfather, that's right. You know, my, my roster is filling up pretty fast. And so the, the better job I want to do with people, I have to find that, that intense number for myself. For, for me, it's three to four. I can manage okay. really effectively three to four people. That puts me at the level that I want to be so that I'm engaged enough in their lives, right? Because the first conversation I want to have on a Monday morning is what did you and the kids do this weekend, yeah. right? Not how do you think about my business problem or your business problem or something like that. That will come. That will come up by nature of the fact that we're in business together. But I want to get to know my people. And again, I run an organization where love is a verb intentionally, right? It, yes. That isn't every organization. If I worked at uh, Redken or something like that, it might be inappropriate to say, what did you do this weekend? You know, because maybe somebody did something they don't feel comfortable sharing or what have you. Totally fine. Absolutely fine. Um, so I'm giving you a, a non-answer by saying, I think it's between uh, sort of uh, two and three all the way up to maybe 11. Uh, but I have never seen someone really effectively manage uh, without any, you know, help uh, manage eight to 11 people. Yeah. You know, you say that, but I don't, I don't think it's a cop-out answer. And because of this follow-up question, I, I think it's important because I'm curious to know when you are managing three to four or 11 people, how much FaceTime should you have with them? Yeah. And again, a cop-out answer is as much as is required, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in a really luxurious position where I hunger for that contact with my people. 
So we speak every day, uh, probably two to three times a day. Lots of times it's a quick, hey, what do you think I should do on this? And my answer is always, I don't know, what should you do? And they tell me, and unless, you know, what they're going to do is going to drop a nuclear bomb in our business, that's usually the right answer. I don't tell them to do what I would do instead. But most of it is um, coaching, and I'm very explicit about coaching. So when I spend time with people, I say, can I coach you on something that I'd like to see done differently? And then, you know, we will describe what that is. That makes a lot of sense. And what I'm really getting to with all these questions as well is a CEO, while they may only be responsible for like an executive team to an extent, they're also in the eyes of a company. They're the leader of the company. They set the vision. They are at the head. They're they're um, looked to by everybody. So what should a CEO be doing to engage employees in a meaningful way, specifically as it grows to a large company, to still have that same face time that maybe employees that aren't directly working for them, that they still feel like they're loved, cared for, engaged with the CEO? So the, the biggest sort of gift a CEO can give because it's the most precious thing he has is his time. Right. So uh, I know people that run much larger organizations than I do have very set schedules all the time, as they should. Right. Because the idea is that the company is paying them to extract the absolute most value out of an hour that they can. So the gifting of that hour over lunch or coffee or something of that nature to interact with someone who isn't a direct report should produce results for sure. And it and it does and will. But that is always perceived as being a really um, uh, prized benefit for somebody to do. So I love it when CEOs take, uh, you know, managed employees two or three levels down from them to lunch. I love when they ask them questions. Jack Welch was famous for saying, what do you know about GE that I don't? What a great question. I use it all the time. Wow. That's great. Great question. Um, uh, Tim Ferriss has a question uh, where he says, uh, you know, what problems are you encouraged or are you encountering and that sort of thing? And what would it look like if it was easy? Right. That's way better than tell me your opinions on this problem, because what are their opinions? Uh, they need somebody else to do a lot of the work. They need more money for them doing the work. And those are not necessarily uh, good things to, to know. We all know those things already. But what would it look like if it was easier? You get really good answers that way. So just interacting around two or three really powerful questions uh, on a regular basis, consistent basis, not with the same person, of course, but with many people uh, is a very good cultural attribute. I love love seeing CEOs do that. Yeah. I love that. Um, And I've got a great example of that as well. So I kind of cut my teeth in medical sales and um, we had a competition years back where the winner of this sales competition, they weren't paid more money. Uh, they didn't get like a write-up in a newsletter or anything. But what they did receive was they received a free lab for the sales rep, for the manager, and for a surgeon of their choice to come to corporate headquarters. So the corporate uh, company paid for the lab. And the biggest kicker was we got to have lunch with the president and founder of the company. Yeah. And it was so cool because it was like, yeah, the lab, look, you could pay for that. You know, the surgeon is grateful that they get educated, 
But the fact that the president of the company would sit down for an hour and have lunch and listen to your surgeon one-on-one, listen to you as a sales rep one-on-one, it was so meaningful because no matter what I paid for that lab, it was not as much as what the founder's time was worth. So it meant so much to be able to earn something like that. And it was a really cool, it was a really cool experience as well. Um, one last question before I get into the final three, because I do want to go yeah, back to culture. Let me just insert. Let yeah. me insert one thing there as well, because we're, we're we're sort of skirting it without saying it. I'm a huge but so we have this belief that love should be a verb. It should be something that you do. You don't just love someone from afar, but you do something for them. What should you do for them? Something that advances their own definition of who they are in their I am dimension, right? So we are huge gifters. It's a game that we love to play. Tommy Breedlove and I are in this competition to the death to see who can give the other guy more stuff, right? So I sent him a couple of ribeyes the other day. Uh, you know, he makes an introduction to somebody like you or what, you know, and we're, we're keeping score, but not really keeping score. It's that sort of thing. Pandemic hit last year. I sent, uh, I sent steaks. I love to send steaks. I sent steaks to uh, most of my team, but one of my team members was a vegetarian, vegan. Mm. And I knew that because we live in a, a place in Georgia where it's hard to be a vegan, she had mentioned to me one time that she had a favorite uh, noodle house in San Francisco. So I call up the noodle house. I have them send, you know, five or 10 different, um, uh, you know, boxes and flavors. A slurp sampler is what they called it uh, to her house so that she didn't have to miss out on not having some good food that she likes to eat as well. Right. And that sort of thing. She felt loved on for sure, but she felt loved and valued because of it. And I'm not tooting my horn because I see, CEOs do amazing things like that all the time. I have a friend that just booked uh, Kevin O'Leary on Cameo for 50 bucks or 30 bucks or something because one of his people had passed a a particularly hard accounting exam and and loves Shark Tank. And so had Kevin O'Leary do a Cameo and say, you know, James, I don't know you, but you rock if you can pass this. And it was awesome. That kid had that all over his social media. And he oh, did, man. you know, he, he really appreciated, he felt valued and loved on. So I just didn't want to move, move forward without understanding that that's a big tool in the CEO's arsenal that oftentimes we don't use. I love that. I love that. Speaking of Shark Tank, Kevin Harrington wrote the foreword to your book. Kevin's a good friend. And uh, when he asked me what I was, what, what is this book you're writing? And I told him, he was like, Really? I could have really used that book. And I said, well, Kevin, I'm glad you say that. Uh, why don't you read it and uh, tell me what you think about it? So uh, he did. And he said, do you need somebody to write the foreword? And I said, yeah, who do you think we could get? And he was like, me, I'll write the foreword. So uh, he, he's a really good guy. And, uh, and I appreciate what he said. And he says very clearly in that, that this is the book I wish I had before I became a CEO. That's awesome. That's awesome. So the question that I was going to ask you though, so you, you had the story about Tommy, Tommy Breedlove, and you talked about him being at the symphony and like him being the center of attention, having like the bigger than life personality at a culture that was different than that. Well, we could acknowledge that Tommy's awesome. Tommy is a high Mm -hmm. performer, but the culture is different. So can you balance someone that is a high performer like that? Can they adopt to a culture or is there just a, a, a natural butting of heads to where you really just can't fit it in and you might have to get rid of someone that's such a high performer because of the culture? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it's the second. 
if you have a really healthy culture where it's articulated correctly, right? And everyone knows what it takes to be successful there. And someone is there and is a good high performer. And this happens a lot, but fundamentally does not share the values and thinks that sometimes the rules should be cut, you know, or, or shortcuts should be made for them. Or I don't feel like doing this, this, or this, but I'll do this because I'm so awesome at the job. Uh, that becomes very toxic. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm preaching to you from a place of sin on that. Okay. When I was at Earthlink, I was really good at my job, but I had five layers of management on top of me that wanted to do things, you know, that I didn't want to do. They wanted me to do things that I didn't want to do. Not unethical things, like very legitimate things, like put your contacts into Salesforce, right? I mean, simple things like that. Don't fly on a Saturday, you know, don't fly first class if coaches, easy things. But I was so good at my job and so profitable at what I was doing. I felt excused from those things. That was not mm. the right thing, except what it was, was myself not participating in the culture which they had built, which was a very nice and friendly culture. Really great. They had massage rooms on every table. Nap, uh, sorry, nap rooms on every floor of the building. They had a pool table on every floor. It was a very collegial type place. I'm not a very collegial committee kind of working guy. And, uh, and so for that reason, I, I had to get up and get out and I frustrated them a lot and they frustrated me a lot. And I had to forgive them for that. And I hope they forgive me for that later years later as well. But yeah, the answer is, um, uh, the, the thing that you evaluate is, is cultural fit, not necessarily performance, unless a performance yeah. can be done in cultural fit. I have a very high performer right now in my uh, benefits business, probably one of the highest performers in the country. But he fits the culture beautifully. He doesn't ask for shortcuts. He doesn't say, I'm not going to do a beatitude of the week or any of that sort of thing. He gets his job done and he loves being part of the culture. What would you say if he didn't? Uh, I would say and have said, this is not the place for you. I had a probably one of my best friends in the world was working with us. And, uh, and he was good at 80% of what we wanted him to be good at, but the 20% he was really bad at and it was corrosive and toxic. And uh, I had to sit him down one day and say, as much as it hurts me, I think you're going to be better placed somewhere else. He was awfully angry at me. He was hurt. He felt blindsided. He now runs a uh, company that's a direct competitor of ours. They do very good work on that 80% of stuff. Um, and I think he is happier having, you know, he makes more money. Uh, he, he gets to choose what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. And they have a different, very high performance oriented culture. I love the idea of establishing and articulating your values and what's important to your company and completely disregard, not completely disregarding, but saying that performance is secondary because I think that it's very short sighted to prioritize high performing in the short term versus fitting in with the culture of a company. And I say that because if you compromise your values and your culture for a high performing individual, I truly feel like everybody else in the company is going to be there. A, it's going to be inauthentic to the values of the company. So the performance from everyone else in the company is going to fail. And I believe that you are essentially 
putting off greater success in the future that might be more positive, you could replace that individual with someone that does fit the culture that may not be high performing in the short term, but will eventually outperform based on the culture that you put in place. So I think that's, I think that is key. Well, you're nailing it right there. And, you know, these two things are not mutually exclusive. It isn't that you can be a high performer or be a good cultural fit. Rather, my task, any CEO's task, is to fill the organization with high performers who are cultural fits. And we've done that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any, any challenge doing that other than, you know, finding someone who really wants to be managed in the way that we manage people can be uncomfortable sometimes. That's, that's yeah. where our biggest uh, challenges are recruiting. What's the biggest mistake a CEO could make? The biggest mistake a CEO can and does make every single day, including the one on your podcast right now, is uh, not trusting and having confidence enough in his team to delegate. Mm. It's the biggest problem. It leads to the burnout of the CEO. It leads to the burnout and the stunted growth of people in his charge. And, uh, and it does not produce the same results for the company, period. I cannot, I, I'm capable of doing every position that I manage, right? You have to be able to do that or, or people won't have respect for you. So if the head of account management decides to quit tomorrow, he reports to me, I should be able to slide into that job and do that job uh, as well as he was doing it with the amount of attention that I can put on it. If I can't, then he and I, he, he probably left for the right reason, frankly. Yeah. But if I delegate to him and then have him report to me on a daily basis of what he's doing, why he's doing it, and that sort of thing, I've divided my time. I have four, three direct reports, so I've divided my time into four because there's me as well. I don't know better than he knows in that position as long as I've done the job of giving him clarity as to where we're trying to get to. And so tons of – I don't even do a staff meeting anymore, Ryan. I have a, uh, uh, we call it the war report, the weekly activity report that I, it asks three questions, three P's. Like, what did you do last week? What are you going to do this week? And what do you need my help with? Right. It's the first thing I open. I, I get them on Friday afternoon. So I read them immediately on Friday afternoon. But on, on Monday morning, the first thing I go to work on is, is what is on those four or those three uh, PPP reports straight up. Yeah. That's awesome. Trey, you have, I don't want to say you've got it all figured out because I would, I would imagine you would argue with me about this, but I, I love what you've written in this book. A CEO only does three things. I think you have great clarity, not just in where you want to take your companies, but also in what it takes to be a successful CEO. And I, I want to thank you for putting together a book that can be a template for anyone that wants to be a manager, a leader, um, and, and just generally have success in business. So awesome job. Thank you. Um, thank you, Ryan. I do have three questions to finish with. But before that, how can people get the book, A CEO Only Does Three Things? How can people contact you on social media? Maybe they want to come work for you. Who knows? How can people get a hold of you? Oh, yeah. I'd love that for sure. Okay. So uh, the book has a website, a CEO only does three things.com is also an Amazon bestseller. So you can get, uh, get copies there. If you want an autographed copy, you can do that through the, uh, th through the website. And we have a good, uh, a good flow of people doing that. Uh, I also have a newsletter, which is called plant your live. It comes out whenever I feel like I've got stuff to say in a newsletter. And uh, we talk about wine. We talk about uh, uh, venture capital deals. We talk about leadership. Uh, just interesting things uh, that comes out uh, whenever we fill up a newsletter. And sometimes it's five times a week and sometimes it's 
nothing because I haven't done one last week. And so uh, anyway, plantyourflag.live. It's the sub stack you can subscribe to there. Uh, uh, Trey-Taylor.com is my website. And then consulting wise, it's trinity-blue.com. That's where we do our consulting with uh, sort of mid-sized organizations on figuring out how do you architect a culture? How do you use that culture to attract and retain the right people? And then what do you have those people focus their time and effort on in the form of numbers? And so um, we love to engage with interesting and, uh, and committed companies. And all of those links will be in the show notes to this episode. So three final questions. What is the most impactful book you have ever read? Um, I read a book that uh, every year since 1987, the book is called Cry the Beloved Country. Uh, It was a novel set in South Africa during apartheid. And the level of compassion that exists in the story of the book keeps me really grounded when uh, I scab over on some things that I shouldn't, I should continue to be raw on. I've read that book every single year since 1987, at least once a year. Uh, Atlas Shrugged is another book that, uh, that I think is very powerful. Before I get anybody to read that book, I caution them uh, against uh, any relationships that they are in where someone is taking more than they are giving. Because if you read that book, then you don't allow that in your life anymore. And that can be a very hard transition uh, for people. It actually cost me my first <laughs> marriage when I read that book and realized that. Uh, so those are two, two good ones. Yeah. Awesome. If you could have a drink with anyone, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? I think um, I could give you two answers on that, but uh, my dad and I never got to say goodbye in the right way. And if I could sit down with dad and have a, you know, a glass of bourbon and say, how am I doing? Like, let me just hear it from you. Is it okay? You know, I think that's the, the older I get, the more I'm drawn uh, to that as my answer. But uh, I love history. So I would love to sit down with Napoleon or Caesar or any of the greats of Winston. I did a whole Winston Churchill study last year as well, but uh, they can all wait in line if I could get that beer with my dad. Yeah. I love it. I love that answer. And the last question. So the, what does, uh, so the Every Breath Counts podcast, the meaning of the podcast, what it means to me, the whole mantra is having gratitude, pushing past adversity, and just creating success in your life. So how do you, Trey, how do you overcome adversity and create success in your life? It's the power of intention. It's knowing what I want and be able to uh, dedicate resources uh, to be able to get that. So uh, last year I sat down and pandemic was on the way I could tell it. And I said, this means I'm going to sit on my butt a lot this year. So what am I going to do with that? So I said, I've had this book in the cloud for a long time. I'm going to pull that book down and it's going to be a real thing by November. And that, that was a sprint, man. That was work to get it done. And so we were able to do that. This year, I said, I'm going to become a private pilot. And uh, I just finished my written test the other day. I have 40 hours of the 40 required. I have another three to four weeks to go before I can get the, uh, uh, the check ride in and be able to pass that. And I'm going to pass that. And so by the end of the year, uh, I will do that. My point is, whatever somebody's dream or whatever it happens to be, it has to come from that I am dimension. It has to be something that you want because you want to add to your identity. So I didn't say I want to write a book. I said, I want to be an author. Right. And the only way to be an author is to have written a book. I want to be a pilot. The only way to do that is to get your pilot's license and all the things that are done 
that way. So I set an I am goal to expand my definition of myself every year, and then I pursue it with relentless intention. That's fantastic. Trey, you are an amazing CEO. You are (laughs) an amazing author, and you have written an impactful book that should be a resource for anyone looking to manage. Thank you so much for your time. Guys, check them out. Follow them. Sign up for the newsletter. Buy the book. Be the best CEO you could be. Only do those three things and make every breath count. Guys, thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, follow or subscribe wherever you're listening and also share it with a friend. If you want, you can also find me on Instagram at Every Breath Counts Podcast. As always, have a great day and make every breath count.